Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Tonight we find out if there's a bright future for solar glass or transparent solar panels that could conceivably turn windows into energy producers. We hear from a grief counselor and author who's collected quotes from those she's helped in their final days over the many years and shared them in a book called Words to Live By. On International Overdose Awareness Day, we hear from a medicine hat mom who lost her 31-year-old son to a fentanyl overdose and find out how she's trying to rally her community to help prevent more deaths. But first, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney joins me to share his memories of Mikhail Gorbachev. From his first meeting in 1983 and the many that followed, the contents of a letter the Soviet president wrote Mulroney on the eve of his resignation in 1991. Mulroney describes Gorbachev as an iconic leader who took giant steps to promote world peace, and he considers him a friend. First up tonight, world leaders past and present continue to react to the death of Mikhail Gorbachev today. The former Soviet president, the last Soviet president, passed away at the age of 91 in Moscow yesterday. He will be remembered by many as the man who tore down the Iron Curtain. His legacy in Russia, though, remains complex, praised for ending the Cold War, but not for failing to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Empire. Now, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney uh, was in power throughout Gorbachev's seven years in power in the Soviet Union, often speaking with the leader and sharing the challenges that he had planned or the changes that he had planned with Canadians. Here he is speaking to Parliament in 1989. President Gorbachev told me, and I quote, that the revolution we have embarked upon is above all a revolution of the mind, of people's mentality. Resistance to change runs deep in the Soviet Union. But in my judgment, there is no viable alternative to Mr. Gorbachev's plan or to Mr. Gorbachev himself. Brian Mulroney speaking back in 1993. Well, certainly few Canadian leaders knew uh, Mikhail Gorbachev as well as Brian Mulroney. And the former Prime Minister joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Happy to be with you. I imagine you've been thinking back on your many memories of Mikhail Gorbachev over the last 24 hours. Um, a sad day in many ways. I mean, he was such a prolific figure uh, for so long. I think a lot of us are thinking back to those days now. Um, what did you make of it when you first heard the news that he had passed? Well, I was uh, very sad because he had become a, a friend, a good friend uh, to me and to Canada. And uh, he had accomplished so much. Uh, and he had had his moments of great sadness, as you know. Uh, and so, on the other hand, uh, I I was sad because we were losing a great man who had contributed enormously to the peace and stability of the world. Uh, so, um, yeah, the, he was a, one of the great leaders of uh, the 80s and 90s, and uh, he, he'll, be, he'll be very missed. I was. It had been nearly forty years since you'd first met. I hadn't known the story of when you first met, but I gather it was under uh, fairly uh, unique. It was under unique circumstances uh, in Moscow. Yes, I met him at. Uh, what happened was that I went over to Moscow for the funeral of Chernenko, and um, while there, uh, Gorbachev was chosen uh, as the successor, and. Um, I received, or we received, uh, an invitation uh, to meet with him right after the funeral. And so I went to the Kremlin, and uh, he was there with two of his colleagues, uh, as was I. And uh, we began a chat that lasted for, I guess, 45 minutes out of that first go-around. And I found him uh, very, very chipper, uh, very polite, very respectful, very modern compared to everything that had gone before in the Soviet Union. Yeah, so I was impressed with him. And I, in fact, I, I left there and went back to Canada. And a few days later, went to Quebec City to meet President Reagan for, for the Shamrock Summit. Reagan had not met Gorbachev. He didn't know anything about him, really. So I was able to tell Reagan, I said, you know, Ron, I, I think we finally got fellow in charge of the Soviet Union that we can uh, we can achieve a lot with. He's a different kettle of fish. And I think uh, uh, as our interlocutor, you're going to find that you're able to make great progress with him. 
And Mr. Gorbachev wasn't unfamiliar with Canada either. He'd been here. He, he knew something about this place. He came here when he was Minister of Agriculture in 1983. And uh, Eugene Whalen was, uh, was the Minister of Agriculture then and escorted him to a number of Canadian farms. And subsequently, he told me that uh, he had been extremely impressed with the modernity and with the productivity and the success of the Canadian farm belt of our industry, and that he had planned to model uh, the reorganization of the Soviet agriculturalist industry along Canadian lines. He was very impressed. He once said to me, you know, Brian, that productivity and that that growth, uh, spectacular growth that you have in in your agricultural industry, do you have that in other industries as well? And I said, yeah, in all of them. They're all basically the same in terms of uh, our need to compete internationally and uh, the steps we have to take to make certain that Canada competes with the United States and uh, with countries around the world. And uh, he, he, he was very impressed with that. He said, I'm going to take a lot of that on and I want to transform uh, the Soviet economy in, sim- in a similar way. As things begin to accelerate, uh, it always felt like from an outsider, from just you know a, a student watching it all happen, that things started to happen very quickly. Um, there must have been some concern on on your part as a G7 leader of where this was all headed, because suddenly... You know, Soviet republics were were agitating for for more liberty. Uh, the Baltics certainly uh, amongst them. Uh, what were your conversations with with Mr. Gorbachev like in those very tumultuous days, as Glasnost and Perestroika really started to take hold and the ball started to roll? Well, I was there with him for four days, and I think it was November 1989, right after the Berlin Wall fell, and that, of course, brought new pressures on him from for the liberation of Eastern Europe. And so he had um, he had a lot of challenges uh, because he had a Moscow had a tenuous hold on the republics the, that made up the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, all of a sudden, there were fifteen of them that started to make uh, moves and started to talk about uh, separation and uh, independence for them. In fact, uh, along those lines, uh, when Ukraine. Uh, with whom Canada had a special relationship because we have 1.4 million Ukrainians in the in the diaspora here in in Canada, the largest in the world outside of Russia itself. Uh, and uh, the, you, you may remember that uh, I think it was 91, the uh, Ukrainians voted for independence in a referendum, mm-hmm. and uh, Gorbachev asked me not to recommend not to recognize them. Because he feared uh, that if uh, we rec- if an industrialized country, a G7 country like Canada, recognized them, that that would hasten the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And he was right on that. But I said, look, Mikhail, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Uh, the Ukrainians have been pushing for freedom for centuries. And Canada is going to be, and we have a large population here, and we're going to honor their their position and recognize them. And so uh, we did. And uh, Gorbachev was very unhappy about that. But it was, uh, you know, my interest with it was our national interest. I tried to cooperate with him as much as I could. And we did. We, You know, we were friends and good friends. And we worked together in many areas and had some great relations. But uh, as the end approached, uh, it was it was bitter, very sweet for him. You remember the the putsch, the attempted putsch in '91, when he was in Sochi. That's right. I spoke to him while he was there. I spoke to him. He called me as well. Uh, but then when he got back to Moscow, and uh, Yeltsin had had come on the scene very prominently, it was the end of the ball game. I understand that he wrote you a letter before he resigned. What yes, the, he wrote me a letter that. The night he resigned, which was Christmas Eve or Christmas Day of 91, I believe. And uh, I had spoken with him earlier in the day uh, because the end was near for him. And I didn't know when when, when we first spoke.
that morning. Uh, but uh, before he resigned, he sent me a letter of, of uh, talking about how how sad he was to go because he was very pleased with his relationship with Canada and with me, and he recognized that Canadians had tried to help him, tried to help uh, the Soviet economy modernize and get get fit for service. Uh, and so he stood down because he realized that um, uh, that uh, his his reforms and himself uh, were out of favor in the Soviet Union. And uh, but he is going to be remembered as an iconic figure because of two specific things. You know, first the, the enormity of the reforms that he undertook in the Soviet Union, trying to democratize and modernize uh, a very uh, a, a very centralized communistic system that uh, that uh, couldn't organize a two-car funeral in terms of the economy, and but also and principally because um, he um, participated in getting rid of the threat of nuclear war and and uh, ending the Cold War without a shot being fired. President Reagan gets a lot of credit for that, as he should, and I certainly give him a lot. But it takes two to tango. And Gorbachev was the indispensable man on the other side of this project, without whose leadership and support, uh, the end, the Cold War could never have ended. And so he he's an iconic figure as far as I'm concerned in history for those major things that he achieved. It is remarkable that so little, so few shots were fired, maybe Romania, I suppose, but in general, just how little bloodshed there was. You met him afterwards over the years you would, you would meet. Yeah. How did, how did he look back on those years? And, and, and also just the, the sort of, I mean, I was in Russia at one point doing stories. It wasn't that there was a disdain. He was sort of forgotten somehow in a strange way. Um, Well, when he ran for office, you know, there's a, there's a time and a place for everything. And when he tried to make a comeback, uh, you know, that was a mistake. And he got like a half of 1% of the vote. And he was very, very humiliated and saddened by that. But his repu- so his reputation in the Soviet Union was, was at a very low ebb because uh, his reforms had not yet produced prosperity. And there was a certain humiliation uh, among the... The right wing there uh, felt uh, that he had let them down in his relationships with the United States. But personally, I used to see him. I saw him in Houston and in New York and uh, Paris and uh, Montreal uh, and other places. He was on the international speaking tour, as was I. And so we'd, we'd, we'd meet each other from time to time and have lunch or dinner and chat about uh, the good old days. And he was very forthcoming, and he was very chatty, uh, wistful. Uh, the transformation in his life and his attitude and so on occurred when uh, Raisa died. He, they had a marvelous marriage, mm-hmm. and he was very dependent on her, both in his, as an advisor and as a friend, and of course as a wife and mother. And when she died, I believe in 1999, or when she died, uh, a lot of him died as well, and uh, but I have no doubt at all, uh, but that history is going to treat him extremely well uh, because of the giant steps that he took to bring peace and prosperity to the world. Before we go, I wanted to ask about today, about Russia now. You know, I was watching that Pizza Hut commercial that Gorbachev was in so famously back in the 90s. You know, there isn't a Pizza Hut in Russia anymore. You know, it's back behind an iron curtain of its own creation in some ways. I wonder what he would have made of all this, what you make of all of it. Well, I know what he would have made of it. He was was appalled by what what was taking place, and he was appalled by much of of, uh, Putin's leadership and achievements. when Putin came in, uh, Gorbachev uh, was friendly with him and attended his inauguration and would meet with him and counsel him. Uh, but after a period of time, and as Putin's behavior became more er- erratic and his ambition for swallowing up or recreating the Russian Empire became more and more evident, uh, Gorbachev was appalled by it all. 
and uh, and and uh, on on really on the outs as far as he was concerned with Putin. He he, he felt quite properly that that uh, Putin's actions uh, were negating all he had tried to do to bring about a, a restored Soviet Union, uh, which was treated with admiration and respect around the world. Uh, and he, while he was there, he achieved that. He was highly regarded, as you know, around the world mm -hmm. as a brilliant leader and a, and a highly accomplished man. And yet today, uh, the, the former Soviet Union, uh, but in particular Russia, is treated as an unworthy pariah. Uh, and uh, that's starting to take place at home in Russia as well. So, no, he was, uh, he was appalled by what he saw going on. And, uh, and he, he, as I say, he lived on in history because his trajectory was the exact opposite of what you see happening in Russia today. Do you have any one favorite fond memory of him that we may not know about an incident, a moment, a comment, a conversation that you always remember him by? <laughs> well, uh, some years ago, Mila had, because I was a frustrated saloon singer, <laughs> Mila had, had, uh, had made me record a, a CD for the grandchildren. And uh, Gorbachev had done a, a CD uh, for the favorite songs of his of Raisa, his wife. <laughs> and one day I told him that having heard his and mine, that Frank Sinatra could rest in peace. <laughs> yeah, he, he, loved to, he loved to sing. And, and he, he did this recording of, of her favorite song. He was a wonderful guy. Brian Mulroney, thank you so much. Thank you. Buildings, as you may know, windowed big tall buildings are responsible for about 40% of global energy consumption. It's about the same here in Canada. So it's no surprise that there's a real motive and real push on to make them more energy efficient right across the board. But imagine turning something like a tall glass walled office tower into a self-sufficient structure energy-wise. And that's where solar glass or transparent solar panels come in. It's estimated there's something like 5 to 7 billion square meters of windows in the U.S. alone. There's another 2.5 billion square meters of glass installed around the world each year. Imagine if all of them could be solar panels, what the impact of that would be. So work is continuing to try to create a solar window that is as efficient as it is transparent. Um, we're not quite yet there yet, but we're getting there. It's pretty impressive. Uh, so imagine when the surfaces on the outside of a building could create electricity in a way that you wouldn't even notice. They'd be unobtrusive. So how does it work? What challenges remain? How far away are we from this happening? Joining me now with some answers is Andreas Athianidis. He's director of the Concordia Center for Zero Energy Building Studies. He's also a professor in the Department of Building, Civil, and Environmental Engineering at Concordia University in Montreal. He's also one of the foremost experts in the world on solar buildings. Thanks for your time. Uh, thank you, Ben. So this whole notion of transparent solar panels, in other words, things you could actually use as windows, is fascinating. Where are we at? Uh, how far ahead are we with it? And uh, what are some of the challenges? Uh, there are some significant advances. Uh, so there are already windows in the market uh, with silicon solar cells uh, uh, spaced, uh, uh, let's say, at the uh, covering a window 50% of the area. And uh, the other 50% uh, would let uh, uh, light uh, pass through. Mm -hmm. So those are uh, what I call not the completely uh, transparent, but, but semi-transparent. However, uh, there are new technologies coming out, uh, uh, thin film uh, technologies and uh, new technologies like perovskite solar cells uh, that will be uh, more uniformly transparent and uh, uh, appear a certain color, for example. So typically, they would generate uh, some electricity and transmit some daylight. Uh, the proportion of daylight uh, to electricity uh, depends on the technology that is used. You know, what have been some of the challenges? Because I know that this, um, this technology was first sort of... Uh, discovered, or at least it started out uh, a while ago now, right? It's been about a decade. Uh, yes. what, have been the, what, what have been the challenges in, try, in terms of trying to get it to work? Uh, to get it to work, um, one of the challenges is, first of all, uh, uh, developing products that are uh, 
building oriented that they take into account the needs of uh, buildings. Uh, and as you know, if you put a window in a building, it has to transmit uh, daylight. It, it has to do the other normal functions of a window, which is basically keep out the heat in the summer and let as much of it as possible in the winter, uh, the solar uh, uh, against the passive solar heat. So a window is a rather complex system that is sometimes uh, not understood completely uh, by different uh, stakeholders uh, because it affects everything. I mean, it affects our mood, it affects the, uh, the need uh, for electric lighting, how much electric light we need to use. And uh, in addition then putting in the solar cells, um, which generate electricity, adds another parameter, the generation of electricity. So optimizing a window like this uh, for uh, specific applications, let's say office, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of a complex task. Uh, and uh, so taking into account all these considerations uh, took some time to basically come up with ideas of practical products. Yeah, because the idea of a transparent solar panel, in other words, a window that that creates or at least gathers energy seems like such a, a wonderful idea. So when you say that there's been certain between stakeholders, there's been certain complexities with understanding the needs. Is that just trying to make the best solar panel versus making a good window? Exactly. Yes. So uh, and um, if you take a window as a system, um, its performance uh, comprises several aspects. Okay, one is the thermal aspects, how much heat uh, you lose to the window in the winter and how much heat you gain in the summer. Uh, the other is the sound, okay, uh, double glazed windows. Uh, basically, when they came out, uh, one of their advantages was to reduce noise coming into a room because there is the spacing of the air between the two layers of glass. Then there is the structural aspect. You don't want rain to penetrate through a window, so you want it to last. Then uh, one of the most complex is, however, the uh, how you handle the visible light coming through, the daylight. And in offices, uh, the, uh, it has two aspects. One is uh, it is very useful. Uh, it replaces the need for electric lighting. But at the same time, you don't want glare. So that uh, that's something you need to take into consideration. And uh, and then, in addition to all these aspects, when you talk about the daylight, it's the view. Um, if you have uh, spaced solar cells in a window, they will block some of the view. So you might want to do that in the top half of the window or the top third of the window. So all of these aspects taken together uh, make it a, quite a complex task to, de to design an optimized uh, semi-transparent photovoltaic window. So, realistically, how far away do you think we are? No, no. I mean, I mean, there are already some products. I, uh, uh, I, uh, we have developed some experimental products in our lab at Concordia, in collaboration with some companies, both window and solar companies. But uh, I haven't seen anything uh, to make it to the market yet. But I have seen some commercial products uh, in Europe uh, from some manufacturers, window manufacturers. And uh, I don't remember the names right now, but there are some in the market available. And I believe there is uh, a Canadian company in Toronto, again, uh, also getting into this market. And um, uh, this is a very promising area. Yeah, I can imagine, because if you can create a window that then uh, helps fuel or create energy for a building, uh, your buildings become self-sustainable, right, in, in that way. Exactly. Uh, then um, a window may become an energy generating element. Instead of um, losing energy to the outside or getting heat when you don't want the heat that is in the summer, it could become, uh, in principle, an energy positive element. Where else could this be used and what sort of applications could it have when it, came, when it comes to having them actually create energy? Uh, they could be used in many different applications. One of them is greenhouses. There you don't have the limitation of view. You just want some uh, daylight to come into the greenhouse, uh, depending on the, on the needs of the plants. And uh, generating electricity would be a very positive uh, second aspect. So greenhouses are one. Another one is infrastructure applications. 
for for example, as barriers, uh, uh, sound barriers at the sides of major highways. Um, they, they could generate electricity and also act as barriers, uh, uh, essentially acoustic barriers uh, uh, in major uh, roadways. Uh, they could be used also in major infrastructure like, uh, let's say, train stations and uh, uh, other large buildings, uh, rooftop skylights. And, uh, uh, and they could also be used in cars, electric vehicles. So in electric vehicles, you could possibly use the windows to generate some electricity. And uh, this would give uh, some extra energy to the car. When you see, and again, I mean, I gather we're, we're quite a ways off on those as well, but that would be, um, how far ahead are we in terms of those broader applications? Uh, one area in which they started being used is greenhouses. And I know there are some uh, automobile companies uh, looking at uh, their use in cars as well. Um, they have been used also in uh, train stations in Europe. Um, that's the case where we have spaced uh, solar cells. The solar cells are opaque, but uh, light passes between them. So uh, the idea is already spreading, and there are some initial applications. Just in terms of solar buildings in general, I know this is something you know a lot about. How much uh, advancement have we seen over the last few years, and what are some of the things that are exciting you, developments that have excited you uh, recently? Uh, in the solar buildings area, uh, another exciting uh, aspect, in addition to the transparent uh, solar windows, are uh, building integrated photovoltaic thermal systems. We are we use opaque uh, uh, solar panels as part of the building envelope, the roof or the facades. But in addition, um, we pass uh, air under them to get uh, a lot of the heat that would otherwise be used to the uh, would be lost to the atmosphere. And uh, so in those cases, uh, uh, the so-called building integrated photovoltaic thermal systems are used to generate uh, electricity and useful heat, for example, to heat the fresh air of the building during the winter. Uh, one uh, such application, uh, relatively recent application, was at the Varen Library, the Canada's first uh, uh, net zero energy institutional building, uh, uh, designed uh, and completed uh, with our advice and uh, uh, guidance uh, in Varennes, uh, uh, setup of uh, Montreal in Quebec, right. and uh, it's now in operation. What kind of savings? I mean, when when this works properly, what kind of savings can you see uh, in terms of energy when it comes to using these sorts of these applications? In other words, either something like a, like transparent solar panels, or even as you mentioned, the whole notion of incorporating solar panels into the design of a building, whether it be on the facade or or on the roof and the roofing tiles. Basic, basically, you can have a zero energy building. You can generate as much electricity as you uh, as you would uh, basically buy from the grid in a year. And sometimes you would export electricity to the grid. Uh, sometimes you would be getting electricity from the grid, but the balance would be zero. Why are we doing more of it? Or are we doing more of it? Okay, there are several barriers. One is in building design um, and uh, the tools to do those kind of designs. Then uh, the availability of uh, low cost uh, so-called building integrated uh, photovoltaic products. Mm -hmm. So uh, although regular uh, standalone solar panels have dropped in price, um, the building integrated ones haven't dropped as much. And uh, in addition, we need some customization. So it's a case of integrating a lot of different technologies in an optimal manner together and uh, optimally designing a building while trying to reduce uh, overall cost. So it is doable, uh, but it takes a lot of uh, different stakeholders to uh, basically move in this direction in order for it to happen uh, efficiently. Yeah, I can imagine the library in the suburb of Montreal in Varennes was was something that was set upon as an experiment, right? Something that was done... A demonstration uh, project. A demonstration project, exactly. Uh, how far away do you think we are from seeing more of these? I mean, it, it seems like... 
uh, the whole notion of how to how to uh, how to take in solar has really accelerated quickly uh, over over time. How quickly do you think we'll be seeing more of these uh, these integrated panels in buildings? I think we'll be seeing more of them over the ten uh, next ten years. But what needs to happen? We need government policies that will facilitate this process. Like for example, for electric vehicles, you have a, a certain subsidy, and you see it working. You know, people are buying more and more electric vehicles. So we need the same kind of incentives specifically aimed at building integrated photovoltaics. And uh, uh, sometimes when you combine this technology with other technologies like uh, um, uh, energy storage, for example, uh, uh, using uh, uh, the batteries in the electric car to store some of the electricity and then feed it back to the grid at another time when the grid needs it, with uh, di- different prices of electricity at different times, then uh, there, there could be um, more incentives for people to put the systems because they would make financial sense as well. So we need uh, basically action on the government side, both provincial and federal governments, and uh, uh, more education. We need to educate the public on this uh, uh, kind of things, like, the, like it has been done with electric vehicles. And uh, I think this is going to happen uh, more slowly in buildings than in electric vehicles, uh, because the building is more complex than a, than a vehicle, because you have so many stakeholders. Right. And the expense, obviously, right? The expense yes, always comes uh, comes into it. Yes. Are you getting enough? Have you been in conversation with, with, with different levels of government about more support for this, similar to what we see with electric vehicles? Yes, we started the discussion, and I'm heading uh, a Canadian Academy of Engineering roadmap uh, related to this area. So we'll be making some recommendations there. Andreas Athianidis, thank you so much. Uh, fascinating topic. Thank you. You are welcome, Ben. I've been asking you tonight to share a quote that's permanently changed your life, something that was said to you or shared with you that completely changed the way you thought about things or just something that really resonated with you. Uh, I've had a lot of good ones shared with me tonight. Um, Well, my next guest has had a privileged position when it comes to not only comforting people who are in the final stages of life and their loved ones, but also being able to hear from them, share stories with them, and hear their thoughts about what they've learned, what they're thinking. It's a vulnerable time, obviously, but you know there's lots to talk about, I would imagine. It has culminated in a book called Words to Live By, words spoken by hospice patients of different ages and generations, but all bound by having little time left to share. And not surprisingly, the quotes and thoughts range from simple to deeply philosophical. They are about love, pain, laughter, regret, all of it a way of making sure that words of profound wisdom are shared not only with some, but in this case, now that they're written down, shared with many. Sarah Krenke is a grief counselor, co-founder and executive director of the Grief Club of Minnesota, and she is the author of Words to Live By, and she joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Tell me a bit about what you do. So I am a social worker and grief counselor and have been in the field of death, dying and bereavement for a little over 27 years. So working with families who are anticipating the death of a loved one and um, have worked with literally thousands of grieving kids children, teens, young adults, and their families. And I, about two years ago, started a nonprofit called the Grief Club of Minnesota, where we provide counseling services at no cost to families where there's been the death of a young parent or the death of a child. I mean, that's that's important work and obviously difficult work as well. You meet people at a time when they're when they're very vulnerable, but also at a time when they when they're thinking about life, too. And I gather um, you'd heard lots of very interesting things over the years. Absolutely. Yes. So I think where this um, passion of mine for appreciating words and quotes really began when I was a child myself, a teenager. My mom was diagnosed when I was a teenager with cancer and 
her cancer reoccurred a couple of years after her initial diagnosis. And just a couple of weeks before she died, she spoke words to me that just instilled inspiration in me, not only personally, but professionally as well. And um, the words that she said were, remember, I love you. I will always, always love you. Even when you can no longer see me, I will love you. And so as you can imagine, as as a teenager and um, a person just wanting their mom to be here on earth with them, and in those times when I was missing her most, I would often think back about she can't see me and I can't see her, but she still loves me. And it just inspired me this appreciation for words that were spoken by really people who had few words left to share. And it inspired me to become, as I said before, a hospice social worker and a grief counselor. And um, during my time as a hospice social worker, I had the, the deep privilege and honor of working with so many people who were in the final stages of their life. And they would say things to me, and I would feel so fortunate to be able un- to be on the receiving end of what they were saying and just really felt like because of what they were saying that I had the opportunity to really recognize what matters most in life and really to live the best life that I could. And it just sort of felt like I had a duty to share those words with other people. And you'd carried those words that your mom shared with you as well. So you knew the importance of those words. Absolutely. Um, so you decided to to put them down, to share them. I think that was probably the most fascinating part as well, because obviously you yeah. know how impactful those words can be, but how often they go unheard, right? People don't often hear the words that people have to say in the final stages of life. Um, right. How did you go about trying to figure out which ones would really resonate resonate with a lot of people? Sure. So I had been a hospice social worker for many, many years, and I would keep little sticky notes. I would be with a hospice patient and with their family, and they would say sometimes really profound things and sometimes really simple things, but they just resonated with me. And so over the years, I had this compilation of little sticky notes that I would just keep. And um, people would say to me, you should write a book about that. And of course, that was not at all my intention. Um, But long story short, it's Uh, working with my publishers, Tristan Publishing, they also felt very touched by the importance of of the words that I had the fortune to be able to receive. And so along with my publishers, we took all of my little sticky notes and, and typed them up. And I had pages and pages of these inspirational and meaningful words. And we felt like we could have created many books. And so it was hard to decide which ones we were going to put in the book. But after some time, we we were able to compile this precious little book that I hope can bring hope and meaning to people and just a reminder to appreciate the simple, ordinary things in life. It's fascinating the, w- the way you put that, that there were there some of this, what people had to say was very, very straightforward and very simple. And I imagine others were, you know, more philosophical and so forth. Tell me some of the ones that have really stood out to you uh, over the years and why. Absolutely. You know, I think a piece, too, that feels really important to me is that each patient, you know, comes to their end of life at, at different times. And so some of these quotes are from people who are, you know, 30 years old to 100 years old. And so their life experiences put them in a position to be able to share these words of wisdom and people who are feeling at a point of they've they've lived a good full life, and then people who feel as though um, they weren't given that that gift of time, and wanting to pass on words to perhaps their young children or their other family members, and so some of them, well, all of them are meaningful to me, but some of them, as I was kind of preparing for our time together, Ben. Some of them that just really stick out to me, and again, they're real simple, um, but one of them is it's usually the good things that you do in life come straight from the heart, 
And that was spoken by a woman who was dying of cancer. Her name was Marcia, and she was 63 years old. And I think sometimes life can seem really complicated, and we have to put so much thought into so many things. But really, when you simplify it and think about what she's saying is that if we do things straight from the heart, that's where the goodness comes. Um, Another one, which is just really basic, which I love this one, but this came from... um, a woman who was talking to her children. Um, She was 52 years old and she just simply said to them, you know what guys, when you're working around the house and cleaning, just remember dusting is overrated. And I was like, (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Wow. So there's, it it really crosses right. It's right across the spectrum of things, right? Uh, Advice, um, humor, everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, there was one that really inspired me and it's, it's kind of a long one. Um, but I'll share it with you. And it was a hospice patient. He was 50 years old. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, tell me what you would do if you were given a two month life sentence. And I said back to him, oh, this isn't about me. This is about you. And he said, no, I want you to tell me really, what would you do? And I wasn't prepared for that question, but I said, I'd go skydiving. And his response was, well, take it from me. Just do those things now. Do them today and don't wait like I did. I had all of these dreams for me and my wife and my kids, things we were going to do, places we were going to explore, words that needed to be spoken. And now I lay in this bed dying, not able to make those things happen. So just do what you need to do to make those things happen. You never know when it's going to be your time to go and you don't want to have any regrets. And the day after that, I scheduled a um, skydiving appointment and I went skydiving three months after Billy had shared that quote with me. And it just made you realize that every day is such a gift and, and not to wait for the right time to do so many things in life. It's amazing how much these words have impacted you, Sarah. Absolutely. They certainly have. You know, there's a quote in here also that says it was um, a mom who had teenage kids. And in her words were, hug your kids every day before they go to school, no matter how old they are. And so while I, I can't say I do that every single day with my children, but I certainly try to make it a point to just provide that simple hug to them. And, you know, like I had said earlier, Ben, that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted to put these words out to others is because it does just remind you the importance of, of what matters most. Yeah. I, I, I mean, what's probably I imagine something you probably noticed too is what people don't say in that situation, the things they don't talk about as much as the things they do. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, I had one of the quotes in here. It it was from a gentleman who um, didn't have the best relationship with his family. And as he was, um, you know, in his bed with just not much time left to live, his quote was, um, apologize for your wrongdoings. And even sometimes if you're not wrong, but you think it will make the situation better. That's good advice. That's (laughs) good advice. That's good advice. So I guess a lot of these things are, I mean, they don't sound like it's about regrets, but they're, they're always about things that you think maybe you should have done more of and how simple they must seem um, when you don't have time to do them. When you don't have time to do them. Right. You know, this one, um, this lady, her name, her name was Martha. She was 70 years old and just this delightful, delightful lady. And um, she was kind of a spitfire and always had a, a bit of um, words of advice for me when I would visit her. But this one really rang true with me. Uh, she said, plant tomatoes. They are so easy to grow and it will make you feel like you've really accomplished something. Plant tomatoes. <laughs> Another. Yep. So it, it's it's remarkable, Sarah. Just the, just this the broad amount of things that people had to say to you over the years, and and you know all of it. All of them strike me as being equally, uh, in, you know, equally important uh, in, in a way. When you right. walked, when you stepped away from the book, and as you, I'm sure you continue to hear these words shared yeah. with you even today. Um, 
what is it that that allows you to sort of appreciate what you're being told to continue to be to appreciate all that's that you've heard after so many years? That's a great question. And I think it, it really helps solidify a foundation for me of wanting to just live my best life and just appreciate, you know, good health and family and friends and hugs and giggles and love and not necessarily put focus on things and and materialistic things. It was really a foundation that I feel like has, has carried me through so many years of my life, you know, going back to when I was a teenager and not really even knowing at the time how profound my mom's words were going to be to me as I entered into my professional career and was able to, you know, share these words with other people about um, just really living your best life. Sarah Crinky, thank you so much for sharing part of what you've heard over the years. Uh, the book is called Words to Live By uh, by Sarah Crinky, and I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share these important words. Well, there are events and vigils held right across the country today to mark International Overdose Awareness Day. Much of the focus uh, today and in recent years is on the country's ongoing opioid crisis, of course. More than 7,500 people died of apparent opioid toxicity in 2021 alone. Imagine that's 21 deaths per day on average. And the vast majority of them, 88%, took place in just three provinces, Ontario, BC, and Alberta. Since 2016, about 10,000 people have died in this country, 100 alone in Medicine Hat. It's not that big a place, a population of about 60,000. Uh, they reached that grim milestone recently. Uh, today, people gathered there too to remember those lost. Of course, as it's always said, behind every one of those numbers is a family and a life and a story. Uh, one of those being remembered today was uh, Kim Porter's 31-year-old son, Neil. He passed away five years ago from a fentanyl overdose after struggling for years with addiction, anxiety, and depression. Kim is one of those fighting to make sure there are more services and resources available in her community to try to help those in need and to save lives. They had an event there tonight as well. And uh, Kim joins me now. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Tell me about tonight. I know that every year um, changes a little bit. Uh, there was some new stuff this year as well. And I guess you had a chance to all be back uh, together as well, given the past few years there were restrictions in place. That's that's right. Um, so this year our event went from five till eight tonight. And we um, were able to offer food again this year with COVID. We've not been able to do that for the last couple of years. We find Food is a way to help people connect, to feel a little more relaxed, and it brings in um, people in vulnerable situations as well as um, the average medicine hatter, um, and they can sit down and enjoy a meal together. Um, We had the biggest crowd we've had come out this year. We had well over 200 people, which is quite big considering the size of our community. Um, We acknowledge uh, the lives lost. And um, we um, provide support for people that are looking for support, as well as um, just letting people make connections and grieve um, openly. Yeah, and recognizing it too, you know, bringing it out in the open as well as you've talked about. I know that... um, you know, you became involved in this because of personal loss. I think a lot of mums who do get involved in this um, come from, the, from a similar place of pain and, and trying to understand what happened. But you often talked about the stigma of it as well was a huge problem. And events like tonight, I, I imagine, help lift that just a little bit. Exactly. And um, that's the benefit of having a number of different people in different economic statuses and uh, positions in their life come out. And, um, you know, we have families come out with their children and um, they say to me, tonight I had a conversation with a teacher, you know, what can we do? And I said, well, just bringing your two daughters here tonight is important to make them aware that this happens in every community, that it can happen in anybody's home and um, to keep those conversations open. Yeah, tell me, tell me about your experience a little bit, because I, again, I know that Mum um, Stop the Harm is, is a group that I've spoken to before, but but um, not from Alberta, not from Medicine Hat. Um, tell me a bit about you, like many mums, I guess, didn't know the depths of 
of, of what the addiction was when it happened and, and how and how much you've had to learn since about it uh, has been quite the journey. I think um, as a mom, um, you you see, I think, the tip of the iceberg of what your child is struggling with. And also, I, I think in retrospect, I, I always hoped that it wasn't as bad as, as it was. And um, when we found out how, how significant it was after a number of overdoses that we weren't made aware of, um, it was too late. Neil had died. And um, uh, in retrospect, I, of course, I want to, I wish I had known more. And that's part of what, you know, our medicine and drug coalition and mom stop the harm does is try to educate people um, and, and open up those conversations so that um, people know that it, it can affect anybody. Yeah. I, mean, I was surprised to see that there've been a hundred opioid deaths in Medicine Hat over the past six years. I know it's a community of about 60,000, 65,000. That strikes me as a lot. I think we often talk about this. I don't know if you see this because you're you're involved in it uh, within the community. Is it often, do you feel covered or at least perceived as maybe being a bigger city problem? But but we, we know it's happening in all kinds of communities. Well, exactly. Um, I was actually surprised that when I was looking at some of the stats today, um, in comparison, um, Medicine Hat has more overdose deaths per 100,000 than all of Alberta put together. So uh, we have more than Calgary. Um, but we, we're sort of that forgotten end of the corner uh, of the province. And um, I also think that um, we have resources in our community, but we're quite a conservative community and people tend to hide their substance use. And so they're not reaching out. I know that was a component of my son's struggle was um, stigma was huge for him. And um, he, he didn't want to reach out for help. Um, he thought he could control it on his own and he hid it from most people. They had no idea what his struggle was. Um, but as far as in, in medicine hat, we, people come here and they see this lovely community flowers, on the streets, you know, we, we keep things looking really nice, but we have, we have a big struggle here. We don't have a supervised consumption site here. A number of years ago, we fought to get one and the community fought against it. And um, the government in our province, the UCP, um, sided with um, the NIMBYism. And uh, so that's another reason why I think our numbers are high. You know, I was reading today, too, that, you know, Sudbury in Ontario, Thunder Bay in Ontario, a lot of smaller cities are having big problems with the opioid crisis. And I imagine it's a lot of what you're describing, which is sort of this perfect storm of a problem that exists. But in a smaller community, um, it's hard to ask for help because everyone knows who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stigma the stigma is tough. Uh, and, and there's, you know, and there are conservative attitudes about, you know, those are not those are not the problems that exist in my town. That happens in Calgary or Vancouver or Toronto. It doesn't happen here. And waking up to that reality can be tough. It's just tough to convince people, I'm sure, in your own community that you have a real problem on your hands. Very much so. So the events like tonight help with that. We've had more coverage this year for some reason um, because the issue is becoming huge and um, it's going to continue that way um, until we get some of the necessary supports in place, like safe supply. Um, people have a really strong attitude against safe supply. Um, but once it starts affecting your own family, you don't open your eyes to what that means and how it can save a life. And and I, I was guilty of that myself before um, my son's death and during his struggle. I didn't understand um, the supports that he needed and uh Afterwards, I did. I, I learned, and um, that's a, that's a regret I have. I can't go back and change that. But um, you know, I do have moms reach out to me in this community that um, have no one else. They haven't told anybody else. Um, you read the obituaries in the paper; they're usually covered up. Um, it's um, it's not written that this person died from fentanyl poisoning or. Um, you know, struggled with mental health. That that's really hushed up in our community. I Consequently, we yeah. Yeah. 
consequently, a couple of years ago, we had um, quite a significant amount of young men in our community die by suicide. Um, and uh, they're, they're starting to be a little more open about that in our community because of, um, you know, the, the crazy amount of people that, that numbers of people that had died. Uh, Kim, I imagine that one of the difficult parts being in a smaller community is trying to find or trying at least to have the services you think will help uh, this this horrific situation, um, trying to get them provided to you. Because there's always, as you mentioned, there's always going to be opposition uh, locally as well. And and this idea that that the problem may, might not be as, might not exist in the in the town. And, and therefore, we don't need the sorts of things that you're suggesting, like a supervised consumption site and places and things such as that. Right. And our numbers are proof that we do need that sort of support. So, um, yeah, the NIMBYism won over in that one. And um, those of us in the Drug Coalition um, were sort of a ragtag group of people that um, are either working in recovery programs, um, helping support clients, working in jails with um, people that are struggling, um, or we're just community members that have been personally affected. And um if the government's not going to step in and make the necessary changes, then we as, as a general public have to do it. And um, especially in a smaller community, um, we have to continue the fight. Yeah, it must be. I mean, I, I guess discouraging probably isn't the word, but it must be a real challenge at times to try and convince your neighbors, in other words, that these are the sorts of things that are needed, um, even though there's obviously going to be pushback in, in communities about having such things as supervised consumption sites or something like safe supply, which remains, you know, which has opponents everywhere you go, even in even in big cities. Right. Discouraging is 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 just the tip of the iceberg on the, on. Um, I can't even think of the proper term to describe how it feels to watch. Um, people that we love, people that we care about, um, struggle and die. People are going to, people have used drugs for thousands of years. They're going to continue to use drugs. And so if we don't supply them with a safe place to do it, they're going to be doing it in their own home, in the alleys, in um, hotel rooms. And consequently, there's not going to be anybody there to reverse the overdose and they're going to die. So we, yeah, we, we have a safe supply of alcohol. Alcohol was legalized. Alcohol was regulated. You know, when you go to a bar, which is a supervised consumption site, to order a beer, that you know exactly the amount of alcohol in it. You know it's not tainted. Um, and so I think that this government needs to um, open up its eyes and um, consider safe supply. What do you tell to to other mums out there right across the country in smaller places where they may not have the same uh, supports perhaps that are available. I know people uh, everywhere uh, feel like there's just not enough support period, but to to mums and other smaller communities who may be witnessing this, struggling with this um, and may not have many people to reach out to because within the community, if you start to reach out, then everyone starts to know. And that's the last thing you want to have happen. You know, the stigma, how do you, uh, what, what do you, what advice do you have to mums out there who may be in your shoes? reach out, help break down that stigma, um, start the conversation with your children. Uh, their lives depend on it. Um, reach out to Mom Stop the Harm. We have a wealth of information within Mom Stop the Harm. Um, advocate for the changes that you want to see. Um, reach out um, in your community and see if, like in, in Medicine Hat, we're so fortunate to have a Medicine Hat Drug Coalition. We're the ones that have put on this event for the last five years. And um we're just a group of people that are concerned about what's happening in our community. Um, so I say, use your voice, use um, the the fact that your child could die to help motivate you to come out of that fear, come out of that, that stigma, um, that discrimination um, and um, speak out. And, and do you have any do you have any hope that that things will get will get better where you are at least that some of the services you feel are needed will be provided at some point? I do have hope, and I and I can't not have hope because I wouldn't continue to do what I do. Of course, there's days where uh, the hope seems minimal, but I I continue to um, focus on um, we are going to change things. We have a new city council, um, and. Um, our mayor, Lindsay Clark, showed up at our events event tonight, and um, she's very much in favor of 
doing what we need to support the struggle in Medicine Hat. Um, so I um, and, and a couple other council members showed up. I feel encouraged by um, by the politicians that we have here in Medicine Hat. I fight actively for a change in government here in Alberta. I'm working with um, our NDP candidate to um, try to. Um, um, we have to do something different. We can't keep doing the same thing. That's craziness. Kim, um, I think sometimes we don't often talk enough about how this opioid crisis has impacted communities such as yours. And I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, shed some light on that tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate you reaching out and into our smaller community. Um, that's, that's what we need to help change um, the direction that we're going in. Mm-hmm.